one of my favorite books, if not my favorite book in the Bible, is the book of Romans. And it answers a very important question, which I'll address in just a moment. But let me start by asking you this question. Are we human beings okay? Is there some spark of divinity within every one of us? Are we essentially good by nature? Or do we have a problem? By the way, your answer to that very important question is really tied to what you think about God. What do you know about God will impact and influence the, the, the answer to that question. In case you don't know who God is, let me tell you His central attribute is that He is holy. God is holy, and there's a lot involved in His holiness. Some people only think of it as Him being sinless and perfect. That's only a small part of it. See, His holiness encompasses everything about Him, really. All His other attributes. And it shows that God is unique, that God is distinct, and that God is totally separate from His creation. There is nothing like God. Even we who are made in His image are still not exactly like Him. And so God's holy, we're not. That creates a huge problem. The problem is we are sinners by choice as well as by birth. We have separated ourselves from God, and that reality ends up making us God's enemies. And He's the last place. That is the last place you want to be, really, when you think about it. And so that that brings up an important question then. Since we're God's enemies, and that is the, the worst possible scenario, how can a person be right with God? Let me ask it another way. How can a sinner be justified in God's eyes? You say, well, what, what is justified? What does justification mean? All right, just think of it this way. You're, you're made right. God declares you not only to be not guilty, but God gives you His Son's righteousness. It gets even better than not just guilty. So you've been declared not guilty. You are now made right with God. You become one of His children. So how can a sinner then be justified in God's eyes? That sounds glorious. That's wonderful. And it is. Well, here's the good news. Because back in A.D. 56, God raised up a man by the name of the Apostle Paul who wrote to people in the city of Rome. And we have this wonderful book we call Romans that answers this very important question of how can I be right with God? How can I be right with God? Well, here's the theme which I've drawn from the New Testament survey book. I quote, Paul wrote Romans to declare the righteousness of God and to demonstrate how man can, through faith in Jesus Christ, gain the righteousness necessary to restore his relationship to God, which has been broken by sin, and to live in a manner pleasing to God. End quote. So I have three basic questions that I have for you today that we will attempt to answer. Number one, how can God be reconciled to us? That's the problem. How can God be reconciled to us? Because even if you want to be reconciled to God, the, the overarching, the most important issue here is 
God has to come to you. He has to reconcile himself to you. So let's address this very important question that is answered in the book of Romans. And to do that, we're going to look at several statements about this very important word that's called justification. Again, justification is the truth, the reality that you're declared right before God. So let's look at what the book of Romans has to say. Number one, Romans starts with some bad news, okay? If you don't like bad news, uh, I'm sorry, but that this is what God's Word says. We'll, we'll get to the good news. It's coming. But the Apostle Paul starts with some bad news here, and he says that all people need to be justified, and that is because we're all sinners. We've all sinned. Humanity's guilty because God has revealed himself in this natural world that we live in. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Look what God says. These are God's words, not mine. It's important you understand what God says. Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. God says we're all without excuse. We're all sinners. There's no such thing as an honest atheist. So humanity's guilty. Because notice, God has revealed himself in his creation. You can't know everything about God by looking at a tree or a rock. But you can know some things about him. And so the sad reality is, though, that humanity has rejected, the, the majority of humanity has rejected God's revelation all right, look at another one in Revelation, or sorry, not Romans, Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. Romans 3, verse 10 says, As it is written, and these are all quotes from the Old Testament. <laughs> these are quotes from the Old Testament. It says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one do, does good, not even one. We'll stop there, because that's really bad news. This condition is, is a bad one. It's fatal. It, it's worse than a doctor coming to you and saying, you're going to be dead within the month, <laughs> because that's only physical death. God, what he is telling us here, this is spiritual death. That's even worse. So how can sinners be justified well, first, let me tell you how you cannot be made right with God. God tells us how we can't be made right with Him, right here in this same chapter. And He says this, that no one will be justified by what they do. There is nothing you can do to be made right with God. If you don't believe me, look at verse 20. Chapter 3, verse 20 says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So you cannot justify yourself. You can't make yourself right with God. So you might then ask, well then, how can we 
make ourselves right with God. How can this happen? Well, that brings me to the third statement about justification. Number three, sinners can be justified only because of Christ's person and work. It's your only hope. So look at chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. If you have never read John Bunyan's allegorical book, The Pilgrim's Pilgrim's Progress, it should be a must-read for every Christian. Now, I don't have a divine command for that, but uh, if I did, believe me, I would make it. But let me tell you, in case you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan illustrates the contrast between how we can and how we cannot be justified. He does a good job at that. In his book, Pilgrim's Progress, the main character, Christian, feels the weight of his sin. And in fact, he even leaves the the city of destruction. He leaves his family behind, and he's seeking for this, this peace. He wants to get rid of the burden on his back. He feels the weight of his sin before God. He knows he needs to be justified. He knows he needs to be saved. Well, eventually he comes to Mount Sinai. Which, by the way, that represents Moses' law. You can see that in the first couple books of your Bible. And so he runs over to Mount Sinai. He, he, he starts climbing. He's hoping to climb this mountain, remove the, this guilt and the, the weight of the sin that's on his back. From a distance, the mountain looks easy to climb. So he starts ascending the mountain. He finds it very steep, though, once he finally gets there and starts climbing. But he continues, but the mountain keeps getting steeper and steeper until finally this mountain actually starts curving over on itself and he finds himself at an impasse. He can't actually climb the mountain. Christian discovers that justification cannot be found on Mount Sinai where God gave the law to his people, Israel. He can't get to salvation by obeying God's commands. And so he descends from the mountain, and only then does he, he discover a gate. Christian turns, he finds this gate that leads to salvation, and of course that gate represents Jesus Christ. In verse 24 here, the Bible says that redemption comes by a person. Redemption, by the way, is just this wonderful theological truth, meaning that you were bought from the slave market of sin. So redemption comes by Christ. And how did this redemption come by Christ? Verse 25 answers the question. Notice verse 25 says, Christ gave himself as a propitiation. Again, another big, huge theological word. It is a wonderful word. It's one you need to be familiar with. It's the idea that Christ is a sacrifice of atonement. He makes us at one with God. He reconciles us to God. Think of Jesus as a shock absorber. Have you ever rode in a vehicle on a bumpy road that has no shocks? Not the road, but the car, all right? 
Sorry, that was really bad English. Have you ever ridden in a car that has no shock absorbers? So you're going over these bumpy roads, and you're in the car going up and down, getting thrown all over the place. You're the one absorbing the, the bumps. You're getting shocked all, and, and thrown all over the place. How much worse would it be if you had to absorb the wrath, God's wrath, that he poured out on his own son? God did that when Jesus was on the cross. Jesus became your wrath absorber. And whose wrath did he absorb? Well, I already said it. Jesus absorbed God's wrath. See, your greatest problem is God himself. You need to be saved from God. That's your greatest problem. The good news is God sent his son. And so do you see what's going on here? Christ bore the wrath of God for us in a way that we never could because we're not perfect. And even if we were to bear his wrath in hell for all eternity, it would not be enough. Why is that? Well, it's because of this, my friends. All sin that is committed against this infinitely good and eternal God is an infinite offense. And the punishment against an infinite offense can never be exhausted, not by human beings anyway. And so it's only in Jesus Christ can the penalty of sin be satisfied. Look at Romans 5. Romans 5 elaborates on this. Look at verse 10. Romans 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So if sinners can be justified through Christ's work, how will a sinner be justified then? How will a sinner be justified? Well, there's a lot of people who think that they can perform rituals, and these rituals will make them right with God. There are people, well, you know the Jews, even some Jews today think that the ritual of circumcision makes them right with God. There are religious groups today who think by attending Mass, that's going to make them right with God. There are others, many, many people around the world go and get baptized, thinking that their baptism is going to make them right with God. And there's many who pray and light the candles and spin wheels and do all, all sorts of ways of praying to hopefully make themselves right with God. How will a sinner be justified? That leads us to point number four. Sinners will be justified only through faith in Jesus Christ. So, faith alone allows us to receive the benefits of Christ's work. Jesus did the work, but how do you get the benefit? Well, Paul makes this point clear as he talks about Father Abraham. (laughs) Father Abraham, the, the father of the nation of Israel. Well, look at this. Chapter 4, verse 10. Chapter 4, verse 10. How then was it counted to him, that's Abraham, was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. 
He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Now that's complicated, probably, for some of you. But I hope you can see the significance of the chronological order that the Holy Spirit's pointing out to us here. What comes first? The circumcision or Abraham's justification? Well, the scripture should be pretty clear, I hope. The chronological order of Abraham's justification comes first. And Paul notes that Abraham was justified, or in other words, some of your Bibles might say he was counted righteous. That happened in Genesis 15. Why? Well, Genesis 15 says it's because he trusted God. He believed. Well, it said it right there, didn't it? Verse 11. He believed God and His promises, what God said. Then the Bible says he received the sign of circumcision. That happens two chapters later. You can read it for yourself. So Abraham saved. Genesis 15. He believes God. Then he's circumcised in chapter 17 after he's been justified. So it was, in other words, here's the point. It was through his faith, through his belief that he was credited Jesus' righteousness. That leads us to point number five. All kinds of sinners can be justified. All kinds of sinners can be justified. So you can't, my friend, you can't sit here and somehow excuse yourself and say, well, that doesn't apply to me. God has made a way of salvation for all who believe in Jesus Christ. Justification is not tied to your ethnicity. <laughs> so you can't say, well, I'm an African, or you know, I'm a Caucasian, or you know, I'm a Spaniard, or whatever you want to come up with, right? You, it's not your ethnicity that determines whether or not you're a Christian. It's not rituals either. It's tied to faith in God's promise. And so Paul, again, uses Abraham here to make this very point. After all, Abraham's the father of the nation of Israel. He's revered. <laughs> but look what the Holy Spirit says about him. Chapter 4, verse 11. Look at chapter 4, verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So it's, it's not a ritual like circumcision that makes you right with God. Notice Paul here refers to Father Abraham. He doesn't simply mean Abraham as the father of Israel. It includes that, but it's more. He means Abraham as father of all who believe. All who put their faith and their trust and their belief in Jesus. And so my friend, if you trust in Jesus Christ, then the Bible says you're a child of Abraham. By faith, you're a child of Abraham. That's good news, but it gets better. Listen to this. Number six, justification is by faith alone in Christ alone, 
But justifying faith is never alone. Uh, some of you might scratch your head on that. So what does that mean? All right. Being justified does not give you the right to sin. Okay, Romans makes that very, very clear. Just, just because you've been made right with God doesn't mean you can go do whatever you want. In fact, a justified life, one where you are a child of God, means you, you must live a changed life. And that is the whole point of chapter 6 through 8. We don't have time to read it all, so let me just give you a portion. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 1. Because the Apostle Paul's addressing people's questions. And they're, they're thinking, okay, if I'm saved it, by faith in Christ alone, justification comes by faith alone, then I can just do whatever I want, right? I, I can sin, and God's just going to deal with my sin. It doesn't really matter. Well, look what the Holy Spirit says, chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Now look at verse 18. Verse 18 says, Having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So you're going to be a slave of something. Either you're a slave of sin, or you're a slave to God. You're a slave of righteousness. So, since we're still sinners, i got a question for you. Is there any sin that can be held against you? Is it possible for God to hold sin against you? Because we're still sinners. Paul talks about his struggle in chapter 7. He talks about this frustration and progressive sanctification where I'm not doing what I want to do and I do the things that I don't want to do. And Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Ugh! <laughs> He's frustrated. He can't wait to get to heaven and the curse of sin will be totally removed. So, can sin be held against us? Well, here's one of my favorite all-time verses in the entire Bible. For those who are justified... There is no condemnation. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 8, verse 1. One of the greatest verses in the entire Bible says this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Jesus, by the way, it means you're saved. You're eternally saved. There is no condemnation. And I love what the MacArthur Study Bible says. I quote on the screen here. Condemnation is used exclusively in judicial settings as the opposite of justification. It refers to a verdict of guilty and the penalty that verdict demands. No sin a believer can commit, past, present, or future, can be held against him. Since the penalty was paid by Christ, 
and righteousness was imputed to the believer. And no sin will ever reverse this divine legal decision. End quote. I hope you believe that. It is a wonderful truth. So those who are justified, the Bible says, there is no condemnation. And it gets even better in chapter 8. Because number 8, we need to understand this, that justification brings ultimate glorification. Look at verse 30. Look at verse 30, chapter 8, verse 30. Those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. By the way, I hope you know English grammar well. helps you to study the Bible. Notice that glorification here is past tense. Do you know what that means? It means when God looks at a Christian... He looks at you as already glorified. How cool is that? Now, I know that I'm not glorified yet. (laughs) I'm still in this process of being sanctified, conformed into the image of Christ. That's verse 29. I'm not there yet. But the cool thing is, when God sees me, he's He's not thinking of me as I was as an unsaved man. I know that I am going to be glorified. And in God's eyes, I, in a sense, I already am. That's what justification accomplishes, brings glorification. Well, some people think, well, yeah, but I'm a sinner, so surely there must be something that puts a barrier between me and God. Can I be separated from God if I sin against Him? Some people think, Hey, I committed the unpardonable sin. A lot of people don't really know what that means. Some people think that way. So is there something that can separate you from God? Is that even possible? i got some good news for you because nothing can separate the justified ones from God. Look at chapter 8, verse 31. Verse 31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor angels, nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's good news, isn't it? It's our only hope. Well, that certainly is good news, but that brings a dilemma. Some have 
I'm sure, have thought about a problem. What about the nation of Israel? They were God's chosen people. And on the whole, they rejected God. Well, that creates a problem. Some think, well, God rejected Israel. He's totally done with Israel. And all those promises that God made to the nation of Israel have now carried over to the church. Is that what happened? Well, that's why you have Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. The problem begins with Israel's rejection of Jesus as their Messiah. Some 2,000 years ago, when Jesus of Nazareth came, on the whole, the Jews rejected him, had him nailed to the cross. Yes, he died, he gave up his spirit, he was buried, but Jesus rose again. You can't kill God. But if we can be justified only by faith in Christ, and Israel has rejected Christ, then some might say, well, hey, Israel's rejected. Israel's been totally rejected. But what about God's promises? God promised Israel blessing. God promised inheritance through Father Abraham. I hope you see a problem here. There is a problem, an apparent problem. What are we going to say about God's promises? And maybe even more important than that, what are we going to say about God himself? There appears to be a problem here, and so Paul addresses this in Romans 9-11. through So here's the question we want to ask. How does the Apostle Paul defend God? How does Paul defend God in Romans 9-11? through Well, first of all, let me tell you this much. God doesn't need defending from us, okay? Let's be perfectly clear. God doesn't need anybody to defend him. He can handle that himself. And he's the author of Scripture, so I guess in a way he's doing that here. But God also uses human authors like Paul. And Paul defends God to himself, to others who might accuse God of being unjust, and maybe even perhaps to you. So follow Paul's argument here quickly through these three chapters. First of all, we see that God has remained faithful, even though Israel was unfaithful to God. That's good news. God doesn't change. He's always faithful. Israel demonstrated their unfaithfulness by rejecting God's promised Messiah. However, God hasn't changed. God uh, has not become unfaithful just because his people rejected him on the whole. So the message of these chapters is basically this, that God is faithful. Israel's unfaithfulness was a very sore trial for Paul, apparently, You kind of see his anguish here in the beginning. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. Chapter 9, verse 1, Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Wow, they had a lot of blessings. Paul names a few of them there. So how could those fortunes and those blessings of God's people have gone so wrong? Well, many assume God was to blame. Can't blame God. 
So it's important to understand that being an Israeli doesn't make someone a Christian. Again, it's not about your ethnicity. Just because you're you're born into the God's covenant people, if you're an Israeli, doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't make you right with God. Paul makes that clear in verse 6. Look at verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, you're not all Christians. Some of them were. Of course, Paul, who was a Jew, was a Christian. Many were, but not all. So to to doubt God's faithful character because of Israel's unbelief is just out of the question. The Holy Spirit's making that quite clear here. Again, look at another passage. Look at verse 14. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So hopefully you see there in chapter 9 that God is faithful. But as we go on, we also see God has always worked by calling sinners to faith. Salvation's always been by faith, even for the nation of Israel. Paul knew his Old Testament, and he knew it well. He was a Pharisee. He knew God always worked in the same way, which is calling sinners to faith, calling them to believe his promises of salvation. So look what Paul says in chapter 10, verse 10. Chapter 10, verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. And then Paul backs that statement up by quoting from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And he does that in verse 11. Look at verse 11. It says, For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. And then Paul resumes his argument again in verse 12. He says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. And then Paul again quotes from the Old Testament in verse 13. He says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's important to note that salvation has always been by faith in Christ alone. Salvation, the way you get to Christ and get to God and heaven hasn't changed over the years. It's always been the same. So what's the point? Paul's using these quotes from the Old Testament to prove something. He wants you to understand that God has always called sinful human beings to faith. He hasn't changed that. And so the way of salvation is accessible if you believe. And if salvation is available to all who believe, then all people need to hear the message. And that's what he says in verse 17. Verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. So in short, God hasn't changed. God hasn't changed His way of working with sinful people. God has remained faithful. And he's always used the Bible, his word, the scriptures, to call his people to faith in him. So that's why it's important to tell people what the Bible says. 
Well, the next question that Paul addresses is this. Did God reject his people Israel? Did he finally and forever reject his people Israel? Or do what we see happening at the moment, is this only temporary? It's an important question. That leads us to the third point, which is this, that God has not changed whom he intends to save. God hasn't changed whom he intends to save. Look at chapter 11. Chapter 11. Look in your Bibles at verse 1. Chapter 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? That's referring to Israel. Paul says, by no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Now look at verse 5. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. It's by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. So God knows exactly what he's doing with his people. <laughs> and so even though, on the whole, the Jews rejected Jesus as their Messiah, and the Gentiles uh, have been blessed, haven't we? Those of us who are Gentiles, many of us have accepted Jesus Christ, and we've been grafted into this tree of Israel. And so the Gentiles' acceptance of Jesus serves God's purposes, and that's what Paul's talking about here in chapter 11. Look at verse 11. Verse 11. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Wow. So Paul argues through chapter 11 here, God's never guaranteed salvation to every physical descendant of Abraham. Never happened. Because salvation is by faith in Jesus. So true Israelites have always been the children of God's promise. The way it's always been. So then as now, many Israelites did not believe God's promises, yet their unbelief didn't make God unfaithful. God is still faithful. They were exposing their own own unfaithfulness as they do that. However, there are some Israelites who, of course, did believe, Paul being one of them, Eventually, Paul says, all Israel will be saved. I believe that's going to happen when Jesus comes back. But look at verse uh, 26. Verse 26. He says this, In this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Jesus is going to do that when he comes back. Praise God. But there's a fourth statement we need to make here. As Paul continues his defense of God, he says, God has always acted for one ultimate purpose. You say, why does God do what he does? It's for his name's sake. At least three times in the book of Romans, God says, I do what I do for my name's sake. It's for my honor and my glory. My honor and my glory is summed up, held together in my name. You can see that in several places. For example, in Romans 1, verse 5. 
which says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name. Chapter 4, verse 20, Paul, chapter 4, verse 20, Paul says what Abraham's faith did. Chapter 4, verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. That's why he did it, to give glory to God. It's all about his name, his honor and glory. And then Paul says why God raised up Pharaoh, an unbeliever, an unbelieving king of Egypt, of all people. He's there to bring glory to God as well. Chapter 9, verse 17. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So when God wants to proclaim His name through all the earth, you don't go and pick the weakest, smallest king. No, you go and pick the most powerful nation on planet earth, the greatest person on planet earth, because it makes God look all the bigger. And that's exactly what God did. So my friends, there are challenging truths we see in the book of Romans. But what Paul tells us here is true. We must believe them. This is who God is. This is how He's revealed Himself. There is no other God. And if you go and attempt to squeeze God into your own little mind, in your own little box, you are committing idolatry. And so it's no wonder, after preaching all these glorious truths that Paul ends with a doxology, at least in this section of the book. So look at chapter 11, verse 33. Chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. So what about you, my friends? What about you? Do you accept God as He has revealed Himself in this book? I hope you have. What's been your response to these truths so far? I'll give you some of the responses that would be appropriate. Some of these I have had. I hope maybe you have had as well. First of all, I've been deeply sobered by the awful severity of God. God is not just a God of love. He's also a God of wrath and justice. He is an awful God. I've been humbled by my dependence on God. I need God every single second of the day. And so do you. I've been allured by God's infinite glory. It's a majestic thing to behold. I have forsaken all confidence in my own achievements. So we should. All of us should. Because our achievements are nothing. And I have entrusted myself to mercy alone. It's not about me. And I pray that God would transform my life, that my life, my whole life, would bring Him honor and glory. And that's what Paul addresses in the last several chapters. 
And since we're lacking in time, we're just going to fly, do a very quick flyover to see how our lives are transformed by the gospel. See, in chapters 12 through 16, Paul now comes to the application part of the book. Paul calls us to live transformed lives since God has shown us all this wonderful mercy. The indicative of who you and I are in Jesus Christ now turns to the imperatives. There's a lot of imperatives, a lot of commands starting in chapter 12. So how does, or I should say, what does a transformed life look like? Here's the applicational message that I got from Dennis Mock for you. I love the way he puts it. I quote, When we are right with God through faith in Christ, we will live rightly in the power of the Spirit in every area of life. End quote. And you say, well, what areas of life does the gospel affect? How is the Holy Spirit transforming my life? What is that going to look like? Well, my friends, let, to, to just put the blanket over everything here, the gospel affects every area of your life. Every area of your life. And that's the point of chapters 12 through 16. So let me just, in case you don't believe it, let me just show you what Paul does here. So we see, first of all, that the, the gospel even affects our relationship between us and God. It affects even God himself. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. And this is kind of the overarching command for these last few chapters. But chapter 12, verse 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed or metamorphosized by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We are to live out the gospel. And how do you say, how do I live out the gospel? Well, you, you do it by giving yourself to God as a living sacrifice. As a living sacrifice. God doesn't want you as a dead one. It may come, it may come to that someday. For the moment, you're to be a living sacrifice. You say, well, how do I live out the gospel? You do it by not being conformed to the standards of this age. This world you and I live in is constantly trying to push you into its mold so you talk like it. You think like it. You act like it. It doesn't like you to talk and think and act like Jesus. So you have to resist. You have a different mold. Your mold is Jesus. You're to imitate Him, to be like Him, conformed into His image. And you say, how is this even going to happen? Because Jesus isn't here. Well, you do have the Holy Spirit. That's chapter 8. But verse 2 says you're to be transformed, continually allowing the Holy Spirit to transform you. And that happens by the renewal of your mind, and God uses His Word, the Bible, to accomplish that purpose. All right, how does the gospel affect my life? Well, again, it's every area. And if you read on, we find it even affects the church. It even affects the church. We don't have time to read everything, so 
I just have a few verses for us to consider. Look at verse 5 in your Bible. Verse 5, chapter 12, verse 5. So we, the church, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. So how do we live out the gospel? How do I live this transformed life? Well, you... According to these verses here, you need to see yourself as a member of the body of Christ and then to live in a proper relationship with each of those members. How do I live out the gospel? By exercising the spiritual gifts that God has given to you. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit gives you at least one gift and probably more. 1 Corinthians 12 says it's for the edification and building up of the body of Christ. So if you're not using your gifts within your local church to help other Christians, then you're sinning. You're living in sin. You're to exercise those spiritual gifts that God has given to you. Well, how do we live out the gospel? Well, it, it includes, and you say, well, what areas of life? It includes the world. The whole world. Look at verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. And if you read on, you'll see there's various commands given there as you live out the gospel in this world. You can live out the gospel by loving each other. You can live out the gospel by practicing biblical principles to unbelievers. You can live out the gospel by overcoming evil with good. Oh, that's difficult, isn't it? You ever had someone who's a pain in the neck, literally? Or figuratively? You show the gospel. You show who Jesus is when you show Christ's love to someone who is unlovely. You overcome that evil with good. Well, number four, a fourth area where we can live this out is in relationship to the governing authorities. The governing authorities, of course, include city councils, national governments, Maybe even an international government. Look at verse uh, 1 in chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So live out the gospel by submitting to this authority. Heaven forbid, I know. It includes paying your taxes, which it goes on to talk about that. It includes that, submitting to authority even in regard to paying our taxes by doing our duty as citizens. That's all encompassed in that. A fifth area where we can live out the gospel is in relation to everyone. Look at chapter 13, verse 8. Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. You live out the gospel by living out this law of love. You live out the gospel by reflecting godliness in your character, in your conduct, what you say. The gospel should affect you. And if it doesn't, then you're not a Christian. <laughs> it's the way it works. The gospel transforms you. But a sixth area where 
you can see this gospel lived out is in relation to other believers. So if you're a Christian, you have responsibility to other believers. Look at chapter 15, verse 5. Chapter 15, verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. (laughs) You can live out the gospel as we see in chapter 14 and 15 by not critically judging other Christians. You can live out the gospel by respecting people's opinions, even in those gray areas, in those areas where we talked about the debatable issues of life. Right? There's a lot of debatable issues of life where God doesn't clearly command you to not do something or do something. So in those debatable issues, the gray areas of life, God says you need to respect other people's opinions. You can live out the gospel by not being a hindrance to other believers. The Bible calls that a stumbling block. You can live out the gospel by building each other up, helping each other in such a way that you're not trashing them and pushing them down, but you're helping them and building them up, strengthening them in the faith. You can live out the gospel by appropriately using your freedom in Christ. Yes, you have real liberty, Christian liberty. But that doesn't mean you can go and do just whatever you want. There's limits. Within those limits, you have freedom. So the gospel should affect every area of our lives. Is it? I hope it is. Paul ends with a wonderful benediction, and I can't think of a better way to end the big picture of Romans by reading his benediction, chapter 16, look at verse 25. Verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen.